The island of Gaunt, a single mountain that lifts its peak a mile above the storm-wracked northeast sea, is a land famous for wizards. From the towns in its high valleys and the ports on its dark, narrow bays, many a Gauntishman has gone forth to serve the lords of the archipelago in their cities as wizard or mage, or looking for adventure to wander working magic from isle to isle of all Earthsea. Of these same, some say the greatest, and surely the greatest voyager, was the man called Sparrowhawk, who in his day became both dragon lord and archmage. His life is told of in the Deed of Ged and in many songs, but this is a tale of the time before his fame, before the songs were made. Talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf or mine. Kick back, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf or mine. Your shelf or mine. Hello, and welcome to your shelf or mine or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. And I'm James Newkirk, the Circulation Clerk at the Longview Public Library. Welcome to the podcast, James. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's James's first time. Yeah. And he's here because we're talking about his favorite? Very close. Tolkien's my favorite, but Ursula's a close second. His second favorite author, Ursula K. Le Guin, and I learned in that documentary last night how important the K is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much identifying, you know, her relationship to her father and anthropology, which shows throughout her work um, quite often. Yeah. So how about we go around like we often do and talk about each of our experience with Ursula Le Guin before getting ready for the podcast. James, why don't you go first? Oh, sure. Well, um, I was first introduced to her as a teenager when the film Tales of Earthsea came out through Studio Ghibli and Disney's uh, American like transfer because it was originally a Japanese film. And that allowed me to then begin, you know, kind of exploring her work, going delving deeper into Earthsea, reading some of those novels, and then pushing on from there into her essays and, and other works. Austin, what about you? Let's see. I'm trying to think of what I read first. I often start enter a writer's work in kind of the unusual way. So instead of reading any of the fantasy novels or sci-fi or anything, I read her essays first, some of the essays, um, particularly in a book called The Wave in the Mind. And then I think I became more aware of her. I was working as an intern at Tin House Books on Thurman Street, which is the street she lived on. I didn't really know that. But I would like go down for lunch to the little co-op grocery store. And there was this lady. And she looked real familiar. I was like, I know this lady from somewhere. And it turned out I knew her from like YouTube videos of Ursula Le Guin talking in interviews. And it was her. That was pretty cool. And then I started, you know, reading more of her work. But I hadn't really read any of the novels until until this. And when she passed away, you'd gone to her... Oh, yeah. So Literary Arts did, in, down in Portland, did like a public memorial service for her when she passed away at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. It was really cool. And actually, um, we all watched a documentary for this uh, about her life. And that was like in production at the time. And so they showed 
some of the kind of like personal scenes of her in nature and stuff as part of it and then had people speak former students and then some of her peers um and then at the end of the evening um they got like the local chinese community to like loan them one of their big dra- parade dragons and it came out onto the stage of the schnitz and then it went up the aisle and everybody followed the dragon out into the streets of portland and it was like it was pretty cool that it was pretty cool. That sounds amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah. They gave her a really, a really good send off. I mean, she, I mean, beloved all over the country, but Portland really, you know, she's she's one of their um, treasures. So very beloved in the city of roses. Becky, I'm not as I'm not as familiar with Ursula K. Le Guin as you two. I think I had read maybe a couple of her stories in different anthologies and I remember reading one it was like it came out when Hunger Games was really big and it was like diverse perspectives of of dystopia and they had put one of her stories in it and I think it felt to me like the, it was like the the best one in there it was kind of one of the ones that didn't feel like phoned in for this anthology which a lot of I think when <laughs> when like you know editors put together a themed anthologies and just ask people to write something for them i think sometimes the stories can be not as good but i think in this case they just took one of her stories and put it in there and it was uh really good and i that might have been the only thing i read in, in entire of hers wow until i read left hand of darkness so and of course you know like i knew who she was her books are everywhere and you put them on the shelf so <laughs> okay She's been, uh, I should just say, uh, this just reminds me, uh, she was actually here at this library, too. She did a visit here in support of one of her Catwings books, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It was a big draw. That was before any of our times here. Yes. When did she die? 2018. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not, not that long ago. No, which actually makes, uh, you know, a lot of her work, you know, recent history, um, makes it makes it really relevant too you know she was a writer ahead of her time so a lot of a lot of the work that she does is still very relevant today and will be relevant in the future yeah so where do you guys want to start i for this podcast i read the left hand of darkness and then i read an essay she had written about the left hand of darkness and then the revised essay that she like annotated so she took that essay and then she annotated it with what she felt like what she thought, like years after she wrote that first essay. And then I read Cat Wings. <laughs> she did. In my usual weird fashion, I had read that essay, but not Left Hand of Darkness. She wrote that essay, Is Gender Necessary? And it came out in her first collection of essays in 76. 70 something. And then she redid it. Yeah. Again. In For the... a different collection of essays. Mm-hmm. For Dancing at the Edge of the World. And that came out in 80s? About 10 years later. Something. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool thing about her that I think comes up in the documentary a lot, is very willing to, like, continue to interrogate her own assumptions mm-hmm. and, like, question. She's she's not shy about criticizing her own past work. I mean, like, I'd do it differently now. Or, you know, trying yeah. to do new things that she thinks, you know, remedy what she had done before. And... You know, not everybody has the confidence to do that. Absolutely. You know, when she uh, was doing Earthsea, took a 17-year break between the first trilogy and the fourth, fifth, and sixth books because she couldn't figure out how to go forward with it. You know, she wanted to take time to 
live life and experience to be able to put down the words on paper that were necessary for the story. And it sounded like, too, like just in the documentary, I've not read Earthsea, yeah, to think about making it less like male centric and how to do that. It's interesting. So you, James, listened to some sort of radio play version of Left Hand of Darkness? I did. I, I checked out um, an online audiobook version of it, but it was it was very much like an actor's um kind of like podcast version it it didn't have any narration or it had very little narration and most of the narration was just like and then this person went to talk to this person and and it was mostly focused on just the conversations that were happening inside the buildings inside i don't remember the exact title but like their version of the halls of justice or whatever uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and then and then when I find out a little bit more about the material, more about the book and the story, I felt very cheated that I didn't <laughs> I didn't get to experience yeah. the full volume uh-huh. of of the story. So I'm gonna have to go back and I'm gonna look up the thing that you did. Reread that. Yeah, I've I've definitely read like abridgments and then found out later that that wasn't the whole thing. And like, hey, yeah, it sounds like Left Hand of Darkness is maybe a bit more of a cha- one of her challenging books. I know Becky was. <laughs> There were moments when Becky was reading it and seemed like a little bit frustrated with it. Oh, so you looks like you listened to the powerful BBC Radio 4 full cast, BBC Radio 4 full cast dramatization based on the best-selling novel. Oh. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I just pulled it back up here. It's a BBC radio broadcast. That's interesting. Did they use... Okay, because... I have a lot to say about Left Hand of Darkness. And did they did they use all like he, him pronouns or did they use a, a different pronoun? They didn't use pronouns, honestly. Um, what I recall, it was mostly you's and me's. Oh, I guess they're talking to each other. Yeah. Well, I guess those are pronouns, but. But yeah, yeah not like third person pronouns. Mm-mm. So the Left Hand of Darkness is about this man and his name is Genli I. And <laughs> Pro- pronounce confidently. And ask for forgiveness and his later. His name is Genli I. And he is a envoy. He works for this kind of like United Nations of Planets organization called the What's it called, you guys? I don't it starts I don't know. with an E. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really good with words, I promise. <laughs> He works for the Ecumen. The Ecumen. There you go. He works for the Ecumen, and he sent us an envoy to this ice planet called, they call it Winter, and he's he's there to, like, try to get them to join the Ecumen and, like, tell them that there's, you know, other planets with different kinds of humans, but he's the only, he's from Earth, and he's the only, like, Earthling on this planet, and all these other people are geth gethins <laughs> and they're like a different kind of human and they only have like one gender they are in that normal kind of like a sexless gender most of the time but then they go into like a kind of like a heat once a month for a couple of days and during their heat, they develop like sexual characteristics and they have to like mate. And that's like their their imperative during those couple of days and it like totally controls their life. And then when that's over, then they're just like sexless and draw just people again. 
Throughout the book, though, they're referred to as men, brothers, he's. And so, like, there's this thing where Jen Lee is like, oh, they're not men or women, but he still refers to all of them as men. And they don't talk about this in her essay, and they didn't talk about it in the documentary. Jen Lee, like, whenever he sees somebody and they're doing something that he thinks from his perspective is, like, feminine or he describes it as feminine he describes it as like gross or he's like oh there was like a feminineness about them at this moment because they were so like lazy or tricksy or sloppy or like dumb uh (laughs) and I was like what is going on here I know that Ursula wrote this book in like the 60s and it's hard to escape you know internalized misogyny and She's trying to do something cool here, but uh, I don't know if it was like the just the character that was supposed to be like a misogynist or if it was just like that seeping through. And so I had a lot of crit- and it was it was like, oh, this book was so groundbreaking and its portrayal of gender and sex and sex roles and all this stuff. Also, because when the people go into heat, they take on sex characteristics, either male or female. It sounds like kind of depending on who they're around it's also very like heterosexual because they have to meet with like an opposite sex chemer person in chemer which is what they call their like heat cycle that's the best way i can describe it <laughs> it's like a or there's some people said like rut like a deer i think in the essays and stuff ursula Le Guin uses unsurprisingly like cat metaphors to <laughs> <Yeah>. explain it <laughs> she's like if you've ever been in an apartment with a tabby cat in heat that's sort of how yeah. she describes it yeah and then she wrote this essay that was in that 76 thing was really a defensive essay about her choice of only using like male pronouns um, and like a male default for her characters that are supposed to be not male. Because people went after her. Yeah. There was Shortly a... after the publication, they and... were like, hey, why is the default male if these people are like yeah, non-binary, I guess? In this book, they refer to like humans like from earth as bisexual because there's two that you know as add that's a the uh, we have that binary but they just have a one so they're like omnisexual i don't remember is that is omni mean one omni means all oh that, that's not right whatever means one mono monosexual yeah something like that and then in her footnoted essay she basically responds to all of my complaints about the book which is really cool. So in like in the 80s, she's like, you know, I probably didn't realize my own biases I had at the time. I was too defensive on the criticism. I would do it differently now. And it's interesting because she talks about how, and she's written about it in different places, I think, the idea that like the language that you speak influences the way that you look at the world or think about the world. Absolutely. And she didn't consider when she was writing this book how her own writing and using like a male default when she was writing would influence how she wrote the characters and how she writes them basically like all men i thought anyways but i know that some people really love this book and it was like good it's well written it's interesting they go um like a big chunk of it they're like journaling journaling journeying over like a glacier and you know it just throws you into the world so you kind of have to figure it out as you go but it is very worldy there's not a lot of character development i guess 
there's like it happens in like little chunks. Anyways, so that's what I thought about Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting actually going through the uh, the BBC production um, because it was very much the main character was a man and his counterpart was portrayed by a woman mm-hmm. and and was utilized in what you're saying, those negative tones of, of womanhood. Yeah. And it, you know, until you started talking about it, until I watched the podcast, I didn't even put two and two together. It just went right over the top of my head. There was know? this part. Let me read it to you. Okay, so he gets his he lands in this one country and he's trying they don't want to like welcome they don't want to join the ecumen. So he tries to go to a different country and they're like less welcoming to them and he's kind of like slow catching on to their culture. They have this weird thing and I forget what it's called, but it's like a kind of a prideful courtesy that they use to like talk around things that he doesn't really understand and I don't really understand either. But so, like, he doesn't get hints or clues that people are trying to tell him about, like, how things are going to go down. Right, right. And he tries anyways. Yeah, yeah. But he ends up getting sent to, like, a labor camp. And then this other person who's been his, like, ally the whole time comes and rescues him. And I think there is a little bit of, like, he never really trusted Estraven. I think because he's kind of feminine in a way that the Genli Eye is, like, not into. But he's so, at this part where he's in this work camp, he says, God, it's just so terrible. Among my fellow prisoners, I had also for the first time on winter a certain feeling of being a man among women or among eunuchs. The prisoners had that same flabbiness and coarseness. They were hard to tell apart. Their emotional tone seemed low. Their talk trivial. I took this lifelessness and leveling at first for the effect of the privation of food, warmth, and liberty, but soon I found out it was more specific than in effect than that. It was the result of the drugs given prisoners to keep them out of Kemmer. But yeah, the way he's like, oh, they seem like women. They're so trivial and flabby. (laughs) I'm interested in knowing more about the BBC well, it did it did do a lot of the conversations, you know, between the differing cultures, the um the Handara mm-hmm. and the Carhides and how, you know, the Carhides were very eager to reject the ecumen. And so he uh went to these foretellers, these mm-hmm. uh fortune tellers. That's a really cool part of the book. Yeah, and and he asked them about it and they're and he asked them in 5 years is this going to happen? Are they going to join the ecumen? And the foretellers say, yes, yes, it will happen in five years. And so he thinks that his work is, you know, close to being completed, but then he gets, you know, sent off and, uh, and it takes him a while. So like, they don't talk about any of that in the audio book or in the BBC broadcast. It, it doesn't really go into the description of where he goes and, and the journey or any of that. Or honestly, I didn't even know that he was rescued from a camp at all until you know we had talked about it and so it it was very much just this happened and then he went to these people and this happened and then five years passed and hurrah that's interesting (laughs) wow yeah i did like that part where he goes to the fortune tellers and i think i might so much of the book is just trying to like keep up with like the world building and stuff and trying to understand like how their politics work and and all the stuff that I think if you re- reread it understanding all of that 
you might catch more of the the stuff I like to get out of a book. So you're kind of like the main character. You're like thrown into this and struggling to except for understand he, the culture. He comes in with like notes. There's like oh. how the acumen works is it's an interesting concept, but they send somebody ahead, um, but that person doesn't tell anybody who they are. They just like are walking through the world, like pretending to be native there. And then they take notes and then they leave. And so when the envoy comes, he has that person's notes and then tells them for the first time. Oh, it's funny. I This is like an aside, but listening to like hesitations about pronunciation. I was reading one of her essays yesterday from this, the old, oldest. We have this really cool copy, the oldest uh, of her essay collections, The Language of the Night. And she talks about, she's like, one of the things I insist on as a, as a, as a writer is pronounceability. She likes to make all her stuff real easy. And she's she's like, except for what did she give us an example of the um the master namer in Earthsea whose name is Karam Karam something? Yeah, Karakumman. Yeah. She's like she's like that one's hard on purpose, but all the other ones are easy. So it's just funny. Well if it's supposed to be easy, then it's probably just what I think it is. It's probably just like Gethin and Chen you know yeah. But so much of the time when you read like science fiction or fantasy, you're like thinking you're pronouncing it one way and then like the movie comes out or you listen to the audiobook or you see an interview and you're like, that's how you say it? Well, I've always had that curse, you know, even with other authors, you know, when I read Harry Potter, the second book, I pronounced it Dobby because in my mind, I thought no one in their right mind would name a character Dobby. That's a dumb name. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know. Right. There was, there's some kind of pronunciation. I remember like listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks where in the beginning they said it one way, like in the first book or two, and then they started saying it the other way because I think they just caught on that everyone else pronounced it differently. But I do not remember what word it was mm. or name. Oh yeah. Yeah, we with that kind of material, you know, we always struggled because English English is different than American English. Okay. And so like the first person that ever read the because I heard the that one on the side note, I heard the the Sorcerer's Stone read to me the first time by a teacher, and she pronounced Hermione's name Hermoin. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Hermoin. Because there's just too many vowels, too many con uh, um She's like, it must be French. So I'm just like, I smush it off. Right. <laughs> right. Well, this kind of makes me want to read The Left Hand of Darkness. It's interesting in the documentary they kind of talk about. I thought they did a good job of talking about it and how, because Becky read, so this one I think has like a foreword by David Mitchell and then maybe an afterword. And uh, it's probably by Neil Gaiman. He's no, everywhere. No, the afterword is by Charlie Jane Anders. Oh, okay. Um, who I don't know who that is, but I, the gist I caught from reading the afterword is that they're like a trans person. So their perspective is like, you know, different, different than, than David, David Mitchell's Mitchell. in the beginning. But Becky was like, these people are like the, um, you know, kind of gushing about the book and, and love it. And Gaiman was talking in the documentary kind of too about how important it is to put that book in, in the context of when she wrote it and stuff. Because I think he talks about how some people read it now and are like, they look back at reactions to it back then of like, oh my gosh, this is the most revolutionary novel and and so progressive and and uh, and it was real like the shook Guardian, people up for the time. The Guardian and quote so, on the back says uh, a quietly oh. revolutionary study in gender, 
I was like, I don't know. I've read teen novels that are more revolutionary in gender than this. Well, but this is a, yeah. But they probably have this, you know, this is like the in the background of like building to, to Well, there. think about how constrained the time, I mean, the time was really constrained uh, in publishing. Right. And, you know, and she was still a new published author. This was her second book that she published. And so, and it's over 50 years old. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I even think this is a different, different set of issues. But like, so we've referred to Earthsea a few times, the Earthsea tril- original Earthsea trilogy. And so I read it in this little paperback, which I'm really falling in love with these like old paperback, mass market paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an afterword <laughs> in uh, Wizard of Earthsea, the first book where she talks about publishing it in 1968. And then she talks about race in the book because the characters are not, the main characters are not white. That's actually been my biggest, the thing that has made me the most upset with the films and TV adaptations of it is it's all been whitewashed through. Yeah, and he, he she talks about that in the thing, and this makes me think of like, you know, trying to put ourselves in the publishing world of the late 60s and how constraining publishers were to writers. Uh, she talks about how the original cover, it's a very cool like cover, the original cover featured kind of a profile, it's very impressionistic, profile of of Gad mm-hmm. and his skin tone is like how she describes it in the book and she's very subtle she doesn't talk about the race very much it's very subtle and sort of copper colored but she said ever since then she talks about this in the afterward ever since then he was portrayed on a lot of book covers as white because the publishers wouldn't do it they were like we're not going to put I, I I'll have to look and see what exactly she said but they were like we're not going to put a dark-skinned hero on the cover Right, right. So he he actually has a red in a uh, red tone to his skin, and his initial trainer is a very dark man, Ojeon. You know, has very dark black skin, and you know when you go to the films and TV adaptations, the you do get you get one and the other. You get White Ged and and then a reasonable adaptation of Ojeon, but for the most part, you know, ninety percent of the characters are just standard white americans so did you watch the sci-fi miniseries sci-fi channel i haven't watched it yet i purchased it and Mm. just haven't gotten around to it but i have gone through a lot of the imagery of it and and i mean i've read the book a couple of times Uh i'm just looking at it now Kristen Crook is in it from uh, Smallville. Yeah, yeah, and they—I uh, always forget. Danny Glover plays the Danny teacher. Danny Glover, yeah. But yeah, this Sean, this white guy plays the main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that just makes me think about how I think even just portraying people who have changed their physical sex in that way, yeah, blew a lot of people's minds. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was interesting too in the documentary. She talks about, like, for a long time, like, when she was in college and stuff, she tried to publish what she was writing in, like, literary magazines, and they didn't want it. And so she she turned to, like, the pulp sci- sci-fi stuff, and they're like, this is great. We'll publish all your stories. And then so she started to, like, get success there and then write longer stuff. But, yeah, how constrained the genre was and who they perceived the audience for that genre was. And I think it's only fairly recently that like people are taking like women in science fiction seriously she even uh during one of her speeches uh for the acceptance of the 2014 award 
you know, she was talking about how she was the the unicorn, the rare uh-huh. mythical creature, <laughs> the woman science fiction writer. Yeah, she's way ahead. I mean, she's talking about this stuff. We talk about fairly recently that there's been sort of more widespread acceptance of uh, and taking seriously of women in science fiction. And also, I mean, she spent a lot of her career fighting for the genre to be taken mm-hmm. seriously as like real art, real literature. Right. You read this book, a lot of these essays are from the 70s, and she's fighting for that same thing in an incredibly funny kind of sarcastic way. She's talking about taking the genre seriously, taking women seriously. But that period when she started writing and she wrote the pulp stuff, they were paying real good. Yeah. <laughs> and there was there was such an appetite. I mean, some of that's like the same period that like Kurt Vonnegut was like that would make me think selling of... magazines, getting rich, selling magazine stories because there was just so many magazines and such an appetite that they would pay. They wanted as much as you could give them as long as it fit kind of that. Their fan base mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Right. They don't pay like that anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how much you get paid to write a short story these days. Not much. Not much. Depends who you are, but still, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a... It's not like back in the day, it'd be like, sold this short story and then lived on it for months. <laughs> right. Well, that's why a lot of her short stories and essays are that's compiled. That's what Stephen King did, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of her stuff is compiled. And, and you know, she takes uh, some of these, like, three, four, five page writings, these stories, and then puts 40 of them together and makes okay. it a novel and then sells that for a reasonable price. Yeah, yeah. Well, and isn't, isn't that she did with Earthsea, she had like a short story or she created this little world and yeah. then she was like, I'll just write some novels. She <laughs> she has this essay in the language of night. She's really funny. She talks about, she's ta- she's the essay starts, she's like on the phone with a, an editor who wants her to like explain her process and she doesn't like it very much. She talks at first, she complains a bunch about the telephone. She hates the telephone. It's only for making appointments with your dentist. And she says she doesn't like that direct form of communication. In fact, she prefers to write to people. In fact, she wants it so indirect that she's going to write stories about imaginary people and have other people read those stories. That's how indirect she wants her communication to be with other human beings. And then she goes into this thing of like, fine, this editor wants to know like, how did you create Earthsea? And she's like, I didn't. I discovered it. And he's like, what? He's like, well, what about your outlines? Did you make lists? And she's like, no. Sometimes I write a note and then I lose it. And uh, she talks. So then she's like, here, I'll give you a history of Earthsea. And it was like that. It was like she wrote a couple of short stories that were set in these island places. She was kind of like, they weren't very good, but it was interesting. And then some guy called her up, some editor, and was like, do you want to write something for young adults? She's like, no. What, how would I even, how would I, what do you mean? How would I even do that? And then, like, she thought about it more and, and was thinking about these islands. But her, her talk, she talks about it, she doesn't want to sound mystical, but like a lot of her, how she writes about them is like she discovers them as her characters go there. Like, she doesn't know what an island is going to be like until she writes it. That's, um, that's actually been a theme through a lot of her work is that she said in the documentary that uh, she doesn't she doesn't create this, though she knows that she's creating it out of her mind, that she doesn't create it. She's just exploring it and telling the stories that exist there like it's a real place. And honestly, it shows. I mean, the, the material that she has put out is very enjoyable and, and well-described. Similarly, she writes in an introduction for The Left Hand of Darkness about how she and science fiction writers aren't futurists. They're not, like, predicting the future. They're writing about the 
the present and like current issues and stuff in a fantastical like setting and way to explore these things. I think that helps too to think about the way that sometimes science fiction can become dated. Yeah, it's kind of like <clears throat> a like a what if question. Yeah. Yeah. A thought experiment. Mm-hmm. These Earthsea books don't feel dated. I mean, I I sat down I with a wizard of Earthsea. I enjoyed it a lot. And this is published in 1968. Tell me about plot-wise what's going on. So in A Wizard of Versi, you have a young boy who has the power of a wizard, which is relatively rare on these islands and can be utilized in a bunch of different ways. You know, he discovers this... This like healer, I believe they describe her as a witch in the novel, just a small town healer who who helps the citizens when they're sick or something, and then hears this the words, the true names of of the elements that she works with, and starts to use them his own, just randomly out being a kid using them, and he calls this bird to him, a little sparrow hawk. And because he can call this bird to him, he does it repeatedly over and over again over the course of some time as a child. And his friends start nicknaming him Sparrowhawk. And so he takes this name and becomes this person. Well, once his power is discovered, then he goes... I don't think he's discovered by Ogeon, but he's referenced to him. And then Ogeon takes him on as an apprentice and teaches him all these things until he gets to a point where he's ready to go to the island of Roke which the island of Roke is a island that is dedicated to magic and the the cultivation of wizards training it's kind of like the the like a wizard school but before the concept really existed so he spends a considerable amount of time there as a child and as a youth developing these skills learning the true names of the the elements of the water the air the true names of birds and and of other things throughout the world so that he can then serve the islands of Earthsea as as a wizard, you know, and, and you can get pretty much any job depending on what you master in. And he ends up spending a lot of time with Kara Kukumen. <laughs> the uh, one unpronounceable name. That's right. Who is the master namer, um, who, who is the person that has all of the names, you know, that have been discovered. He has them memorized, and so he teaches all of this to him um, and Ged himself becomes, you know, a very good namer. So it, uh, it comes to a, a point where he gets into an argument with another boy at the school and him and the boy, rather than, you know, coming to blows, you know, throwing fists, they, uh, they start doing magic. And Ged does the unforgivable. He calls something from the other side of death's door, from the uh. other side of the veil. And it ends up being this darkness, this evil that will chase him and haunt him for years to come. So he has to leave the island. He can't be there because it is actively after him and it endangers everyone on the island with him being there. So he begins his journey into adulthood a little early and and a little on the uh, sketchy side. So he starts to take his journeys around trying to flee this entity. It's like a monster? (sighs) They call it the shadow for most of the book. And it's it's so hard to kind of grasp because yeah it is like it's like a shadow with with powers of earthly realms like it can harm you it can harm you yeah. or even kill you and uh, he doesn't understand it so like for most of the book you're not you know it's you don't have a good understanding of what it is cuz he doesn't have a good understanding of what it is and it like it doesn't have a name that's a big that's, that's a big, big thing where where it's like because if he knew its name he could control it correct yeah yeah it's a nameless thing, and nobody else knows its name, but it knows his name. 
She yeah. <laughs> and it's scary. She makes it pretty like there's this scene. She creates a lot of suspense with this shadow. Mm -hmm. There's like this scene. So it's like the shadow's chasing him, and then there's a bunch of like sort of him learning in the pursuit of this shadow, kind of like what he has to do. But there's this scene where like he goes into the he's sailing. It's a very sailing heavy book. Mm -hmm. He like sails into this little inlet. And he's like going down this little inlet and he realizes that it's like a dead end. And he and he goes to turn the boat around. And then he turns back around and the shadow's like right there. And I was yeah. like, like, and you never know. There's this tug and uh, just sort of a push and pull of like, is he doing things or is like the shadow manipulating him into doing things? Like at one point the shadow like manipulates him into like crashing his boat on a on a rocky shoal. Right. And it's always over his shoulder. And yeah. You know, and he tries to go and do wizard things to help the the societies of the archipelago. And it's just constantly a threat and and a problem that, you know, will endanger everyone. You know, there's a there's a bit of the story where he goes to a small island and tries to help them rid their society of this dragon that has been bothering them. You know, and he he's constantly dealing with this how long do I have here yeah. before it finds us and starts harming the citizens of this town? Which eventually he does, you know, spoiler alert, he eventually uh <laughs> he defeats the shadow? No, well, he he defeats the dragon. I mean, he The shadow thing is that is a big spoiler. It's it's compl It's not what you think. Oh. The it's, shadow. It's not what you think. If how do we feel about spoilers on the podcast? Becky loves them. I love it. Oh, okay. Is so, he the shadow the whole time? So that's actually what it is. Is he names the shadow Ged, and and when he names it himself at the very end of the novel, he becomes one with it and absorbs it back into himself. Essentially, what it was originally was he separated out all of his evil from himself. And gave it life in the form of the shadow. And so when he declares it as his, he becomes whole again. You know what's cool to me sometimes? I read like newer stuff and then I'll read something older that rem or hear about it from you guys. That reminds me of things that I've read that's newer. And I'm like, this must be influenced by this older thing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because so you're like this reminds me a lot of like Rainbow Rowell's Simon Snow books, which are they've had like a funny origin because they come out of fan fiction that it, like Harry Potter style fan fiction that a character in a different novel wrote that she wrote. But the like the bad guy is similar and like the power of words in her magic. It's like whatever words or phrases are more popular have the more magical power and so they change all the time with like popular song lyrics or memes or whatever but the shadow thing really reminds me of that it's such but. a uh it was so good it it's funny too it's short i mean it's short especially for the you know you, you, there's a lot of sci-fi or fantasy tomes yeah, and it's, it's like 200 pages maybe not even yeah and she does so much in it like as we're talking about it, i'm like oh yeah remember that part remember that part <laughs> It's so beautifully written. It's got a. It's very economical in its writing. Another sort of piece of background on Earthsea. So, like in the documentary, she talks about later in some of the later Earthsea books, she like wished she had had female wizards, and she felt like it was male centric and stuff. But even when she was writing it, she came into it with this idea of pushing the boundaries because she felt like wizards were always these old guys. Right. It's a very traditional kind of like Gandalf sense of things. Yeah, and they're just there, and they're already old, and she's like. 
what about young wizards? How do they get there? She kind of like, that was one of the animating, besides this sort of island setting, that was the animating idea was like, well, what about young wizards? And what about, there are all these, always these figures of wisdom that just sort of spring fully formed into these stories. What if we, we go back? So she, even, even though later she's like, oh, I wish I'd done more. She's pushing, pushing the into new territory. And it's also, it's very tangible. Like in the documentary, she was talking about fantasy and how, Sometimes people would talk like fantasy wasn't inspired by the real world or didn't have anything to do with the real world. And she was talking about how the places she goes, Eastern Oregon, the coast, Northern California, Portland, animate these stories. And I mean, there's great sweeping action in this, but there's also a lot of real fine detail and intimate portraits of people and places. They're so good. Absolutely. That's actually been a focal point of mine with my travels recently is to explore the regions that some of my favorite authors have lived in or been been a part of because it does influence their work so much. And you can see it when you're out there. You can see, oh, yeah, that is, you know, this mountain or that is this thing that conjured, you know, this feeling, this intense bit that made her write, you know that descriptive piece that that documentary does a really good job of doing that too like goes with her to like the different places where she was like and then this is you know whatever yeah the places that are important in her life also the places that inspired different like fantasy worlds oh yeah because and and i'm not very far into the second one tombs of atuan yeah she talks in the documentary about how eastern oregon she fell in love with eastern oregon sort of the steens mountain region and so she's like i gotta do a desert book yeah the high desert out in oregon and it's the tombs of atuan i think was very well written as well it starts out with a completely different character and a completely different island sparrowhawk doesn't come into it until almost halfway or more than halfway through the book um, because it's all about this young girl who uh, was taken at birth because she is the new—I forget the exact term for it—like a she's priestess. Like, yeah, she's the priestess of the darkness. It's a Dalai Lama kind of situation, like a Very much. reincarnation of this uh. priestess who's died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they take her from her family and move her into this pseudo temple that is built around these giant monolithic tombs that are just built into a a mountain in the desert and then her whole point is she's the only one that's allowed to to actually traverse the tombs themselves uh there's a there's like a maze and a cavern underneath built into the ground underneath where she's the only one that has the authority of the quote-unquote nameless ones which are the gods that they worship the old gods the gods that don't have names or and their power is much more just life and death rather than physical manipulation of the world and and then it goes it goes much into that and i don't want to spoil too much of it for austin if he's going to finish <laughs> reading it that's okay it's i mean they're they're so beautifully written too that i think you know if you know where they're going they're just a pleasure to read but i was just thinking as we're saying talk about a person on a hot streak she published a wizard of earth in 1968 Left Hand of Darkness in 1969, Tombs of Etowan in 1970. Like, boom, boom, boom. Just like, can you imagine the creativity just year after year? Oh, yeah. You know, and they said in the documentary that um, she was very much regimented in her writing schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Very committed to her work. This is a woman with three kids. Yeah. You know, um, very busy. Taking hours out of every day to put this down on paper. Yeah, and they talked, too, about, like, 
how she'd gone through that period. And you said 17 years between the... Between The Farthest Shore, which is the third novel, uh-huh. yeah. and Tehanu, which is the fourth novel. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, like, doing other stuff and writing and stuff. But then there was, like, a like a less productive time. Mm-hmm. And then in, like, the late 90s, she just started, like... Second wave. Yeah, kind of yeah. a second wave. Yeah. And just, like, rolling out all of this work. Yeah. Well, and, and she talks... If you read some of these old collections of essays... It sounds like the fourth book of Earthsea was not a given. Like they talk, she very much talks about it. Like the Earthsea trilogy, like did that, it's done. Uh, moved on to other things. She's writing the Dispossessed. She's writing the world. The word for the world is forest. She's writing all these other books. But to go back to the Earthsea for a second, one of the other things we talked a little bit about the language and the naming, which is really amazing in this book and and in the documentary, she kind of talks about how it it provides a sort of wizards are a kind of shadow for the artist you know like a kind of alter ego i think magic is really interesting in this book too this is kind of way that she sort of wants to take magic off a pedestal like it's not gandalf you know it's this young person he's just figuring it out but also magic there's a whole spectrum of magic in the book from the archmage down to you know real pedestrian magic like little charms you're putting on boats to seal the fishermen's boats or, you know, the witch that you mentioned is doing, you know, these little healing charms or charms on houses or roofs so they don't leak. Like magic is also a very everyday thing in this book, in these books. Right. And one of the point of contention I have with that is that she very much down talks the, uh, the, the small town healer and, and her potion making and her roof thatching and stuff yeah and there is the gender thing comes in there it's like the women's magic is you know women don't they do real low low uh low capability voltage magic uh-huh. but even the wizards like it's a very service oriented job like they go to some island community and that's what they, they're almost kind of like a priest you know in an old sense like they minister to the community they're like oh your kid is sick i'm gonna come out or oh, you need a charm on your boat it's a very they're very respected, right? But they're not sort of like lording over the community. They're, it's very service. Like they're at runarounds and they get their living kind of because Absolutely. they serve the community. You know, one of the one of the big features of the book was the Windmasters. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. because it's an archipelago, everyone moves around via boat. And so they, they train these, these Windmasters to be able to control the wind in the sails of the boats. So that way they can always go the right direction every time in the right amount of speed, you know, and they with no interruptions and no problems and they can control you know, the weather and and make sure that traveling is easy and comfortable. Yeah, but there's there's a catch. And I think this is what in Earthsea, it trips up Sparrowhawk a lot. Is it like he's very powerful? They know from an early age there's this scene where he like. She talks about how she was kind of tired of militaristic fantasy and, and science fiction. But the only sort of real military scene in this is there's an invasion of the white people. The Cargads. The Cargads. And as a boy, real untrained, except by his aunt, the healer, and maybe somebody else who's like a weather worker in the community. Right. He like saves them. He brings in this fog and allows them an advantage over these raiders. But there's a catch. Like, so there's weather work and there's all this stuff. But in order to do it safely, you have to like be really cautious about balance and like making sure like, oh, you're going to change the weather here. What's that going to do over there? You have to understand everything. And that's what ends up being his real stumbling point is he's a young guy and he's like, I'm great. And I, I just want 
to go for it without understanding the balance. And he lets that hubris of that fight with that guy be like, you know what? I can raise somebody from the dead. Right. And actually, Ogeon, who's a, I love that character. Ogeon, who's his, his original, after he does this big military victory, they're like, we got to get this guy like a wizard to tell him, you know, train him. And so they they call for Ogeon. And he's real bored with Ogeon. Ogeon the silent. Right. Because Ogeon's just very into like quiet observation of nature and like real slow to act, real cautious. Yeah. And that's why he ends up going to Roke is he's like, when am I going to learn anything? And Ogeon's like, well, why don't you go? Just go. <laughs> right. And that was Ogeon's style too was um, he hesitated to use magic at any moment. When it came to the mundane tasks of the day, at Roke, everyone performs magic all the time to cook their meals and to do everything with life. But Ogeon would, he'd go collect the firewood and split it mm. and start the fire and cook over and, you know, and just do They have to sit in the way. rain. That's a big yeah. complaint. Because, like, even regular, like, the healers and stuff will, like, make a dry. If they have to have camp outside, they'll, like, make it so that it doesn't rain on them. And he's like, just get under a tree. Like, yeah, very much just go with the flow <laughs> of the natural world. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, highly recommend that novel. James, have you read other? I read The Tombs of Atuan, and so that that one was different but the same. You know, I mean, it still had Sparrowhawk. It still had Wizardry. And and actually, the spoiler alert for Austin here, uh, it, it deals with a lot of political undertones because in the end of the novel, they end up destroying the tombs and fleeing because he's like, oh, these... These things don't exist. They're not real. You know, the nameless ones are old and their power is irrelevant. Uh. And so when when they break a couple of critical rules, the tombs literally come crashing down and the nameless ones kill everyone there kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and as they as they flee off into the desert, you know, being pursued by the the, the leftovers. So it was kind of like this this whole theme of, you know, killing God kind of thing and had a lot of those dark political undertones that you would see in today's novels quite yeah. often. Interesting. I uh, I never actually got into the third novel, The Farthest Shore. I tried to start it a couple of times, but life happens, you know, yeah. got a little kid at home. Yeah. I think she's a really good essayist, too. Mm-hmm. She's kind of all over the place. Like some of the essays in The Language of the Night are real meandering, kind of like talky essays. But I remember reading that collection, The Wave in the Mind, which is that's a phrase from Virginia Woolf about writing. And she has a few essays in there about sort of her background. She has one called Indian Uncles that are, that's always stuck in my mind because we referred a little bit to the Krober, which is the K. Yeah. Her father was a really influential anthropologist at Berkeley. And sort of, you know, like a field-defining anthropologist who spent most of his time sort of pursuing preservation of what he, at that time, they very much had the idea that the native cultures of California would be totally gone. And so they ran around with that idea, sort of like capturing stories and narratives and stuff. And then they get into this in the documentary. Ishii, the, the last man of that one tribe who'd been living on his own, you know, comes into town and ends up working with Krober to sort of record his culture and stuff. It's not hard to imagine how this milieu kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> influenced Ursula Le Guin, you know, uh, being around all these stories and cultures. Um, and then Ishii, it was kind of a weird relationship. And that, like, ex- 
exploration of like the effects of colonization and stuff like that. Yeah, she saw it, um, and uh, Ishii dies pretty young of tuberculosis. I remember one of the things, and it was really hard on Grover, um, and he was away. I want to say he was in a conference back east, and it was very important to Ishii's culture that his body not be disturbed, but when Krober, and Krober intended to forbid an autopsy, but instead they did one, and that was really, really upsetting to Krober. And then, and so Krober never really wanted to talk about Ishii again, um, but they wanted the book to be written, so then um, her mother, Theodora Krober, wrote, I think, two or three books about Ishii, Ishii and Two Worlds. Right, well, they said that, you know, he was very much involved with the family, mm-hmm. you know, like her father and Ishii were good friends and would do things together, you know, outside of his anthropology work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those Indian uncles that she, the titles, the essay, were these men who were working with her dad, but they were like uncles to her when she was a kid. They'd be around, they'd, they'd go on these trips up to Napa Valley, you know, summering in Napa Valley. That sounds nice. <laughs> and, uh, and these guys would just be, you know, come up for a week and hang out and tell stories and play with the kids. And, it, and I don't think, in the essay she kind of talks about, it. it wasn't until later that she really understood. You know, she's just a little kid. She's like, oh, these are just my Indian uncles. And then later she understands more the whole context. Yeah, honestly, I actually attribute a lot of her, you know, we were talking about how the left hand of darkness, the androgynous people were described as men a lot in the books. I, I attribute most of that to the fact that she was raised around these early 20th century anthropologists who were very much like the English... You know, they yeah, they were they were men for men by men. You know? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, there's a lot more Ursula Le Guin to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I actually touched on one other bit. She because she did a lot of these essays, and one of the things that stuck out to me was that she wrote a couple of times about the quote unquote the great American novel and how publishers or readers are often seeking the great American novel, the the next great literary achievement. And she, in one of her essays, discounts this and says that it's not about the one novel because when you're seeking the one novel and when you're reading the one thing that everyone else is reading you're only getting that one viewpoint uh-huh. and you're you're leaving out hundreds if not thousands of other pieces of important literature and i actually stole a quote from it that says uh, art is not a horse race literature is not the olympics to hell with the great american novel we have all the great novels we need right now and right now some man or woman is writing a new one that we won't know we needed it until we read it yeah yeah. That's good. That's very good. Kind of gets a taste of her uh, irreverent attitude, too. I mean, very she's much. always poking the eye of there, uh, power. There was this like part in the documentary where she talks about her, you know, when they're talking to her towards the end of her life, how there's some people who are really quick to see injustice, and she isn't one of them. She said she's really slow to see it, and that's how she feels about, I think, some of her earlier work or ideas and her like undefensiveness and how she came to critique it later. And I just thought that such like like really appreciate like the like the self awareness and the honesty of something like that. Yeah, I haven't read very many of her essays, but I could see how that. There's would a lot come of bravery. Out. Yeah, um, there's yeah. a lot of bravery. I mean, I think it's brave to be able to go back and especially criticize something you did that was a tremendous success. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a lot of bravery in, you know, the part of the documentary, her famous speech has since been famous when she was given that Lifetime Achievement Award, I think, the National, the Book, National Book Awards. Book Awards. Mm-hmm. And she used her speech. She's like, oh, the little old lady from Oregon, she won't say anything. Uh, she, get, <laughs> she gets up 
And she does this speech, which I think has become a touchstone for a lot of people and booksellers, especially where she just kind of like roasts the sort of profit motivated publishing machine. And she has that famous quote that comes out of that that I'll probably not get exactly right, which was that the power of uh, capitalism seems inevitable, but so did the divine right of kings. That's one of those quotes that comes out of that that speech. I think it was unconquerable, not inevitable. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, yeah. But that idea I've seen, I think a lot of people carried things from that speech. And it's just, just such a uh, <laughs> gutsy thing to do. Oh, yeah. And she was she never let anyone be spared the rod when it came to her criticisms. You know, one of the bits that she wrote on another piece was about receiving letters from people you know and people will will write her letters and then ask her questions about like how did you come up with Ursi? like you were talking about earlier and it's it's like how do you answer that question in a form of a letter you know because it could be a sentence or it could be uh-huh. a book you know and very much just don't don't when you're writing your your favorite authors don't ask them questions that are difficult to answer <laughs> be very precise and pointed with with uh with what you're saying to them otherwise you probably won't get a response that reminds me of that beverly cleary book oh god that's a beautiful book dear mr henshaw have you read that i haven't man mike has not probably not quite there yet but in a couple years you'll have all these beverly cleary books to read to him but dear mr henshaw is one of her like older middle grade books about this boy who's like in fifth grade or something who's given an assignment to write to an author and so he writes to this author it's like the only book he's ever read and he asks him all these questions and mr henshaw writes back but he doesn't answer any of his questions he just like asks his own it's a beautiful if if you get a chance you <laughs> it's know really good yeah. you don't even read it to anybody just like read it yours i mean i was blown away by this book and it's you know a quick book a pistolary book where you sort of learn about this boy's life all through his letters very beautiful yeah, but why why are we talking about? Oh, because it comes out of like Beverly Cleary as a writer, like getting all of these. Oh, the letters, those yeah. letters yeah. from from readers that are asking all these questions. It's just like like you said, you can't answer, and it's like a letter, right? You know, and she uh, she actually goes on to in that in that essay, she goes on to say what what she does like to receive are gifts of knowledge. And so after all four of the Catwings novels had been written, she starts to receive letters from children's classes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple mm-hmm. different ones where they wrote her a fan fiction of Catwings yeah, with a whole new story. And she, you know, she quotes these as quote unquote Catwings five and Catwings six. <laughs> I don't think they've been published, but uh, you know, but she took them such to great heart from the contribution of these these uh, children's classes. Yeah. yeah, that's cute. That visual of a like a little cat with wings is very like charming and inviting to children. Catwings was so cute. We didn't talk about Catwings. Very short little books. Yeah. Um, like four chapters take a half hour to read out loud, and they're about this litter of kittens who are born with wings. And their mother, Jane, the tabby cat, thinks that they were born with wings because she dreamed about, like, escaping the slum where they were born. Yeah, they live in a city alley. Yeah, Yeah. which is like, whoa. And then she tells them to to fly away and, like, find a better life. Yeah, I was very much incensed about that, too, because (laughs) the way it was written in the book was, I have a new husband, and so it's time for you kids to leave the house. 
But also, she wanted them to have a better life, and they could fly away. In the second book, they come back to find her, and she's not there anymore. Yeah, but also, like, the last thing she says in that book is to her, like, new husband. And she's like, I'm sure our kittens will be just as cool as those ones. Right. (laughs) Right. Just like. (sighs) One of the kittens is James. Yeah, that's the one that gets injured. Yeah, he gets attacked by an owl. Yeah, he has a permanent damage to his wing. Yeah. Yeah. So for for those that you know want to hear the 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 children the cat wings do end up finding a nice place to live they move out to a farm mm-hmm. and and some young children come and um discover who they are and bring them food and give them a place to live and promise not to tell anybody about the cats with wings cuz they know that they'll be exploited that's right yeah yeah so they do end up finding a good place to live even if their mom just like gave them the boot <laughs> <laughs> wow wow there's a little something for everybody in Ursula Le Guin, I think. <laughs> yeah. Man, you get children's books, sci-fi, fantasy, poetry, essays. I mean, busy lady. Busy Very lady. Very busy. And a great supporter, too, I think, of, of in, in some of the essay reading. A great supporter of uh, libraries, as it happens. And imagination in a lot of her essays. And, and, you know, sort of the access of children in particular, but everybody to imagination and yeah, one of the things that I'm going to take away from doing the research for this project is that it's going to take me a lifetime to read and understand the work mm-hmm. that took her a lifetime to create. You know, she wrote 23 novels, and so I've been clearing off shelf space <laughs> at home to to be able to add more to it. But, but you know, in my middle age now, I find a lot of value in her essays and and her. Um, just her real life approach and and criticisms to the way the systems that yeah. we live in mm-hmm. work. Yeah, she's very like political minded person, which you can tell in her books, especially I think her books, like especially Left Hand of Darkness, her books for adults. Right. Thinking about shelf space, <laughs> there's also and this is like a little aside, but the um, Library of America editions. I don't know if you've, you've we have them in the library. They do these kind of omnibus editions, and it's kind of a you know one of those honors of a mark of the canon to get it you know get your stuff issued in Library of America, and uh, Ursula Le Guin's work has been their work. It's going to take a while publishing it in these Library of Edi- America volumes, which I think is a big deal because of how much she fought in her career for fantasy and science fiction yeah. to be recognized, you know, the same way that like Steinbeck and Hemingway and uh, uh, Dickens and all these people get published, not Dickens, he's not American, but, <laughs> and they started doing it while she was still alive, which is very rare. We've got to wrap up. Oh, um, yeah, it's 10 we have to go run the library. Okay. So yeah. Thank you, James, for coming on. And thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Uh, You've been listening to Your Shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. And I'm James. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. Luckily, we'll cut out all the awkward. We'll all sound just smooth (laughs) and great. Don't worry.
Augustine, quit breathing into the microphone. It's loud because you're congested. Oh, okay. I love it, though. It's the Darth Vader version of the podcast. <laughs> it's cold and flu season here at the library. <laughs> <laughs> Special episode.